Well, we're going to sort of wrap up our, I think, uh, kind of wrap up our, our study of, our, our, really our survey of Acts in the first 30 years of the church's history. We sort of made our way down that path last week, um, you know, really looking at this, this journey to Rome of the Apostle Paul that it's taking place in the latter A.D. 50s, uh, maybe the early part of A.D. 60 or so, where the Apostle Paul comes off of his third missionary journey that's recorded there for us in Acts. And in Acts chapter 21, begins what I'm just calling this long journey to Rome um, by way of Jerusalem. His heart is to return back to Jerusalem. He really wants to, to go back to Jerusalem uh, but he's, he's met with some opposition by those who are concerned for him because they, the, the, the fellow disciples uh, along several stops in this journey are concerned about what they're hearing and what they know to be escalating trouble uh, on the horizon, particularly from the Jews who, if he finds his way in Jerusalem, he'll be at the epicenter of, of this desire to um, really shut this whole new sect down, this new... Uh, this new following of this Nazarene. There's just this, this growing animosity. Obviously, we saw this throughout the entire survey where much of the um, ridicule, uh, suffering, even, even harm and beating was at the hands or at the instigation of the Jews who had rejected the gospel. You find that, that people in the pagan uh, cities and those who were idolaters and, and Gentiles, uh, did instigate some elements of ridicule and suffering for the Apostle Paul, but a lot of it was instigated by the Jews, even, even in that regard. Um, in, most, in most cases throughout Acts, you see uh, the, 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 the Greeks, the, the, the Gentile people, getting involved as a result of just the civil unrest that was, that was resulting from the Jewish stirring up of of, um, of animosity against this gospel witness that the Apostle Paul and his, his companions were bringing to the various cities and places where they visited on his journeys. And so he's now returning to Jerusalem at the end of this third missionary journey, and he's being warned in several occasions not to go um, because there's just this concern that, that this will be a a really, a, uh, possibly a, the end for him. He could actually die as a result of this, this trip to Jerusalem. But he is committed and convinced by the Spirit that this is what he must do. And so he makes his way there. Ultimately, though, he's going to end up in Rome. That's where he wants to go. That's, that's where he intends to go. Um, we've, we talked a little bit about some of the facts or the details of this journey last week. Um, we saw how he was arrested in Jerusalem. We see this in, in Acts chapter 21. You see really the whole record of this in Acts chapter 21, starting in verse 17, all the way through Acts chapter 23, verse 10. After he arrives in Jerusalem and he meets with the elders there in Jerusalem and he meets with James, um, he reports all that had taken place on his, on his missionary journeys and all the, work that had, all the work of the Lord that had been accomplished, particularly among the Gentiles. James, of course, uh, they rejoice in that, but James also is concerned about the, the, the uprising of the, the Jewish leaders against him, against him particularly, in fact. And so they counsel him to uh, participate in this Nazarite vow, this special consecration vow and, and, and ritual 
um, that's prescribed in numbers. So he participates in this in the temple. And the Jews come along and trump up this charge against him that he had brought a Gentile into the temple, which was not the case. It was a false accusation. But nonetheless, um, we see this kind of playing out in chapter 21, verses 27 to 36. And just again, to take note of, of what the Apostle Paul endured uh, as a result of his ministry of the gospel. And he endured this among his own countrymen. If you look with me in verse 27 of chapter 21, we kind of get a, a picture of this as we see this, this arrest unfolding. This is after he, he's completing this Nazarite vow in the temple. And this is, this is really, um, you know, when Jesus tells us to be um, shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves, he's, he's, this is about shrewdness here. The, James is instructing him, go and participate in this this. Uh, consecration right in the temple to demonstrate to those Jewish leaders who have animosity against you, their accusation against you is that you are trying to completely turn over everything about Judaism. That in other words, your message is not that the hope of the people of Israel has come in Christ. No, that's not the message that they're saying. They're saying you're coming and you're basically an insurrectionist to the very core tenets of Judaism. And that you are basically inciting people against the law of Moses. I mean, he, the, the accusations against the Apostle Paul were fierce in that regard. And so James is encouraging him to participate in some Judaistic practice, nothing, nothing that would be in conflict with the message of the gospel, nothing that would, that would be in conflict with salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone, but to be able to participate as a Jewish man in this, this ritual of consecration, consecrating yourself unto God. And so he does. And so here we pick up when the seven days of this, this Nazarite vow were, were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This man, here comes the accusation, this man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law of this place, moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Untrue accusation. It says, For they had previously seen Trophimus, an Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul, and they dragged him out of the temple. Now this is... This is them dragging this man who is seeking to participate in a consecration ceremony that is prescribed in the Old Testament scriptures in Numbers. And he's doing this with four other men in the temple. And they seize him in the temple under a pretense of guarding the way of God. And they drag him out of the temple. That's the, that's the nature of this kind of, of violence that was perpetrated against Paul. They drag him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. In verse 31, and they were seeking to kill him. Word came, or excuse me, and as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. So here again, you see this picture of the Roman leaders seeing that there's an uprising now, stirring up with the Jews. And so now they've got to step in and figure out what's going on and try to restore peace and civility in this area that they have 
uh, oversight as, as the Roman rulers of, of that period and of that, that place. So the, the cohort, the, the word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Verse 32, he at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. Now listen to this. And when they saw him, meaning the Jews, when they saw the tribune and the cohort, they stopped beating Paul. So this just, Luke just gives you a picture that they had dragged him out of the temple and began to beat him and continued to beat him up until this time when the tribune and the soldiers finally arrived on the scene. When they, when they saw them, that's when they stopped beating Paul. But it goes further. Then the tribune came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who, was, who, who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing and some another, just this chaos and this uproar. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to, to the steps, listen to this, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. In other words, he had been beaten to a point where he could not walk himself. I think it's just important. I, I'm so thankful that the Lord inspired Luke to record these kinds of details for us so that we could actually see this is the kind of environment that the Apostle Paul was ministering in routinely. It's very easy, I think, for us to sort of be um, sort of focusing on the highlights of Paul's ministry and to sort of pass over the, the gritty reality of this gospel witness and this gospel mission amongst his own countrymen. But this, this dragging from the temple and this beating, so much so that he couldn't even walk on, on his own accord, gives us an indication, it gives us a picture of, of what was taking place here. So his own people, again, the very thing that the people, that, that is, the, the disciples and other places on the way had warned him of is, is really coming to pass. But Paul, being faithful and following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, goes and is willing to face this, knowing, as he said previously, that it's through much tribulation that I will enter the kingdom of God. He, he goes on his way here and he, and he faces this kind, of, this kind of suffering and this kind of abuse. Well, the, the story goes on. You see this back and forth sort of trial uh, take place. Um, where they just, they just don't get anywhere. The, the, the Roman cohort, the, the leaders there, the tribune, they don't get anywhere conclusive. And so they realize that they need to, to transport him uh, to Caesarea. Um, they realize that he's a Roman citizen. So they're going to transport him to Caesarea. You read about this in Acts chapter 23, verses 11 to 35, where he's taken to the what is really the provincial capital, the Roman provincial capital of of Judea, there in Caesarea. And, and he ultimately appears before Felix, who is the Roman governor there in Caesarea. You read about that in Acts chapter 24, verses 1 to 27. So he's, he's captured by the Jews. You start to see this mirror image almost of what Christ went through during his trials, where he's back and forth between the Jewish leaders and the Roman leaders, and, and uh, it's just this, this ordeal that unfolds. But he's now in Caesarea, uh, starting in chapter 24, and he's basically on trial before Felix. Again, nothing is resolved there. Interesting um, 
Interesting, to, interesting thing to look at there in Acts chapter 24. Let me get to that real quick. Um, I, I, just, I find this to be another sort of interesting and, and compelling insight to note that when, when he's in Caesarea and he's appearing before Felix, uh, it says there in verse 1, after five days the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. So he's in Caesarea and the, the high priest and some of his uh, cohorts come down and they come down with basically you know, a prosecuting attorney, if you will, this, this man Tertullus, to, to basically lay their charges against Paul before Felix, the governor of this province, the Roman governor of this province. And I just want you to note how Luke records Tertullus's testimony against Paul. It says, starting uh, there at the, verse 2, he says, And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, Now listen to this, since through you, speaking to Felix, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation. In every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. Now do you think that that is a sincere testimony from a Jewish leader before the Roman? It's just so bogus, right? But that's the nature of this kind of violence against the gospel and this utter deception and delusion that is, that is unfolding here against the work of God. When we read in Scripture that, that if you are not for God, you are against God, it, it, we're talking about it is, cons, it, it, is, it is a consuming kind of reality. It is not something, it doesn't matter what name you are speaking in. If you are not truly for God, you are at enmity with God. And you see this right here unfolding. Even so far as to say that the Jewish leaders who are supposed to be representing God himself is just using the most abusive forms of, of lying and deceit to convince this Roman leader to, to let them have their way with Paul. So he just uses, he uses the, these flattering and false statements to somehow persuade uh, Felix that, that, that you know, they are sincere arbiters of the truth and, and nothing could be further from the truth. And he says, but to detain you no further, verse 4, I beg in your kindness to hear us briefly. For we have found this man a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything which we accuse him. Now, and obviously the Jews all join in. Now, it's interesting to contrast that testimony with the manner in which the Apostle Paul speaks and the way that Luke records it. Verse 10, And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. He starts off with just a statement of fact. And what you're going to find is the Apostle Paul is just about presenting truth. And that's it. He says, you can verify, again, evidence, you can test this, you can verify that it is not more than 12 days, specific time period, not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem. 
And they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up the crowd. Remember what happened. He was in the temple under this Nazarite vow with these four other men, and they dragged him from the temple in a violent kind of way. And he's saying, this this is what happened. He says, they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. In other words, presenting truth, presenting facts, not shying away from his core beliefs, testifying to who he actually is before God. So the the, the contrast in testimony, even just seeing that, is a stark reminder of how we should be compelled in our own testimony before men, whether it's opponents or those who are with us. It's about truth. It's about what is true. It's not about trying to be deceptively clever or really to gain our own advantage through the use of our rhetoric. It's not the point, especially when you're talking about conveying what is true before God and what is true about God. He says, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having the hope in, a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to bring alms to my nation to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make accusations should any of them have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they have found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. Which is exactly what he said. And that's what led the Sadducees and the Pharisees to start fighting amongst themselves, by the way. Because if you recall, the Pharisees believed in the resurrection of the dead. They believed in angels. They believed in miracles. But the Sadducees did not. So again, going back to this idea of being shrewd, there is a call for discernment and wisdom and even shrewdness in the ministry of the gospel. And the Apostle Paul did that among them. But it was that that caused them to have conflict with one another. But that's exactly what he said. So in other words, the point in all this, and the the thing I just want to highlight here, is not to to belabor this too far or to try to unpack this, this phony trial too much because it just it doesn't lead to anything conclusive. It's just to make the point that that you see this contrast between deception and truth, even amongst those who would claim to be representatives of God. And that's what the Apostle Paul faced over and over again. Well, this doesn't yield up any conclusion. Ultimately, Felix leaves his post and and actually leaves Paul in, in prison for two years. He's just there for two years. And the next thing you see, you see this in in Acts chapter 24, verse 27, that two years pass. So he's just there in Caesarea for two years, just in prison. But then Felix replaces the governor, uh, uh, excuse me, Festus replaces Felix as the governor. And he's, he's visiting the province of Judea, and he's in Jerusalem. 
and he meets up with the, the chief priests, the, the leaders there. And of course, they're wanting, what they're wanting is they're wanting Paul to be sent back to Jerusalem. They, just, they, they want to have their way with him, but there's also these plans for an ambush to sort of on, en route to ambush Paul and to kill him. But we pick this up in, in this trial before Festus. Um, this kind of gives us this culminating moment where the Apostle Paul's uh, final passage to Rome is confirmed. So you pick up in chapter 25, verse 1 to 12. It says, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province in Judea, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal uh, men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. So again, this is after two years. I mean, th- this is, they're, they're unrelenting in their, their commitment to have Paul uh, done in. So after two years this takes place, they, 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 make, they lay out their case against Paul, and they urged him, Festus, they urged Festus, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. And Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me, and if there's anything wrong about the man, let, him, let them bring charges against him. After he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea, and the next day he took a seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. So here we go again. This is just like, a, you know, same song, second verse kind of things. And this time, instead of it being Felix, it's, it's Festus. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued his, in his defense, he says, Neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal, where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. And that was the, the turning point. Verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his counsel, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So the Apostle Paul knew I go to Jerusalem, that's it. I'll never make it to Rome or anywhere else. So he appeals to Caesar. He, he, he um, shrewdly leverages his standing as a Roman citizen and the way that this entire ordeal had unfolded, and he makes that appeal, and he basically uh, puts uh, Festus in a position where he has to accommodate. Before he goes, um, King Agrippa the second, the, the last Roman client king of the Jews, uh, comes to town, comes to this province of Judea and Caesarea there, and he has one more sort of uh, statement before King Agrippa, a little interesting note of history here that I want to highlight for us. This is just prior to, um, you know, th- this is the last sort of uh, episode that we see before he sets sail for Rome, before Paul sets sail for Rome. You find in verse, uh, chapter 26, verses 27 to 29, this, uh, this little interchange, this is after the Apostle Paul, which, by the way, we referenced this last week. On two different occasions during all these trials, you have the Apostle Paul recounting his conversion experience while on the road to Damascus. Again, we made the point last week that his testimony was a testimony of personal encounter 
and saving faith of a personal salvation experience with the living Christ. That was part of his account as well. And he, he does the same thing before King Agrippa, and he recounts this transformative experience with the resurrected Christ on the road to Damascus. But then down in verse uh, 27 of chapter 26, he says this, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. In verse 28, And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for these chains. Now an interesting note here, is we have some indications from some of the early the accounts of the early church fathers that it was actually Agrippa who gave refuge to Christians who fled from Jerusalem when it was under siege in AD 70 and when Jerusalem fell. That, that, he, that Agrippa had gone to Pella and Christians fled Jerusalem and it was Agrippa risking his own neck, because he was a, a client king. He was under the Romans' thumb. But the, 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 some of the early church fathers tell us that many of those Christians were able to flee and find safety really under the protection of Agrippa, these Christians, when they fled Jerusalem. So just something to kind of note there that it's, is it possible that, that this was you know, a part of Agrippa's conversion? We don't know, but that's just an interesting note. Nevertheless, after this, uh, starting in chapter 28, we see Paul begin his journey. Or excuse me, in tr- chapter 27, we see Paul actually set sail and begin his journey to Rome. Of course, you have this account of this you know, shipwreck. It's multiple stops along the way. And then, of course, there's a, a detailed uh, account of this shipwreck that occurs. And really, the Apostle Paul and, and really the work of God through the Apostle Paul is, is largely responsible for saving you know, 200 plus people on this ship. Um, but nevertheless, you have this sort of dramatic uh, description of this, this voyage. But we find ourselves at the very end of Acts, where the Apostle Paul, and this is, this is where I want to kind of transition to kind of you know, wrap some things up here. In chapter 28, verses 30 to 31, this is where Luke leaves us. This is, this is the end of the record for us. We see the Apostle Paul in, in kind of his condition and what he's able to do. In Chapter 28, verse 30, it says, He lived there, now in Rome, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So this is not the final imprisonment before the Apostle Paul's martyrdom is the point. This is house arrest. This is, he's ultimately released, in other words. This is not Paul's final imprisonment. Uh, destination. He does ultimately end up in the Mamertine prison, where he he you see the the words that he's writing to Timothy in Second Timothy there at the end, where he says, "I'm already being poured out as a drink offering." You you know that he knows the end is coming. That's a second imprisonment. So there is there's references. Obviously, Luke does not record for us the details of what I'm I'm going to mention now, which is some would consider it or. or sort of identify it as Paul's fourth missionary journey. I don't know if that's necessarily, you know, the best way to identify it, particularly when you think about the the three missionary journeys that are described in Acts, which are 
sort of traditional in nature. I mean, he, he sets sail. There's like a starting point, and he sets sail, and he goes to these places, and there's a record of these different places, and then he comes back, and then he starts another trip, and he goes to these places. So this is just, this is just sort of piecing together some other, um, other references from uh, other places in Paul's letters, and really the timing and dates of, of these letters. Um, we know that, that the Apostle Paul... Uh, was is released it's probably around AD 62 and we know that uh, it wasn't until AD 64 when about I don't know a third or close to half of Rome burns um, how many of you have studied the burning of Rome and Nero and all that any reference any reference to that were Nero by the way this is all this third missionary journey and this 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 voyage to Jerusalem and this ultimate trip to Rome is all under the, the reign of Nero. Nero uh, was crazy. Um, uh, indications of that were you know, came about very early on in his reign. He came to power, quote-unquote, to power at age 16. Um, he had several people around him that were really basically responsible for the, the administration uh, as, as he was young and a little bit erratic. Um, a, a lot erratic, actually. Uh, you had Seneca. Maybe that's a name you, you've heard. Seneca was was an advisor to Nero during this youthful part of his reign. Um, I think Burrus was the uh, the other man who was the um, he was over the Praetorian Guard. He was sort of the military leader. And then you had his his mom. Um, I can't remember her name. But these three sort of represented the council that basically ran the empire, administered the empire while he was doing crazy things. It's almost like when you, when you read some of it, you, it seems like it's a modern-day you know, teenage rebel or something. Like he would, he would go with some of his friends, and he would dress up like a, you know, like a commoner, and he would go into you know, the town, and he would vandalize shops and whatnot, you know, throw bricks and stuff at, you know, through, at, at, at merchant locations and whatnot. And then the, the authorities would come to seize them and arrest them, and he would take off his outer garments and, dis, and display his, his regal Roman attire, and they'd have to bow down to him. I mean, just crazy stuff like that. Um, but as he got older, he, he became his, 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 um, his nature became expressed not just in these kinds of you know, juvenile types of forms of rebellion and whatnot, but just... Um, really ghastly forms of immorality and violence. He had his own mother killed because he became suspicious of her. Nevertheless, um, in AD 64, he, uh, Nero is not in Rome at the time uh, when uh, a major portion of the city catches fire. And it's a, it's, a, it's a fire that destroys a large portion of Rome. Um, takes many, many, many days to, to put the fires out. People suffered, lost their homes, people were killed in the midst of it all. And the, the fact that, that Nero was not in town gave him some temporary um, distance from any kind of accusation that he had any responsibility for it. But, but uh, very shortly uh, after the city burned, and actually he earned a lot of a lot of favor from the people early on because he helped people, he brought food, he he tried to provide um, place you know uh, uh, places for people to to live and that kind of thing for a temporary period of time. But it was very shortly after the fires were out that he he rolled out this plan to totally rebuild the burned down portion of Rome, and they were plans that were 
fully developed. So that's when suspicion arose that he had something to do with he, he was and he was a, a builder. He liked to uh, he liked to build, and he was out of space. I mean, he could he had nowhere else to really build in Rome, and so he rolls out these very developed plans. And us being in this building process right now, and knowing how long it takes to draw plans, you can imagine. I mean, I don't think they had AutoCAD on computers back then. So, but he he rolls out these very elaborate and intricate um, development plans. And suspicions arise that he had something to do with this, this fire that was so destructive to the city. And of course, you might already know this, but he turned to uh, a natural scapegoat to blame the fires on. He blamed the Christians. And that led to severe types of persecution of Christians um, at the hands of the Roman government, which is, which is something that is very different, was very different and, and new uh, in that time. There were, there were, periods of persecution or, or violence perpetrated against Christians by Roman officials, but it wasn't sort of state-based. It was really just sort of you know, civil disobedience kinds of things. It was law-keeping and keeping the peace kinds of things. This, this turned into, as you might imagine, uh, Nero seeking justice against the Christians for what they had done to his beloved city Rome, right? Uh, the other thing that the other fact that that led people to people's suspicions, but he, he wanted to change the name of the city to to Neuropolis. So you know you kind of start thinking these plans and all that. So anyway, uh, but anyway, the 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 fact of the matter is, is that the the persecution of Christians became really really severe shortly after Paul's release from prison. So within a couple of years after his release from prison, so he has this window of time, maybe a, a couple of years, where. There's still some freedom of movement. So you, we saw there at the end of Acts, he has much freedom of movement. He's able to share the gospel. People are able to come see him. So clearly, there's, there's nothing that's really hindering um, the continued ministry in, from, a, from the standpoint of the Roman state during this time period. We have these references, for example, in 1 Timothy chapter 3, uh, where, where Paul is, is referencing uh, time in Ephesus and Macedonia, uh, Troas and Miletus are referenced in 2 Timothy 4.13. Crete, uh, a visit to Crete is referenced in Titus 1.5. Uh, there's a reference to his desire to go to Spain in Romans chapter 15, verses 23 to 24. And we have references from, for example, Clement of Rome, one of the early church fathers, and also from what's called the Muratorian Canon or the Muratorian Fragment, which is an early uh, church document dating from around 180 A.D., that references that the Apostle Paul actually went to Spain. So you have these different references that the dating of Paul's letters after this time in, in his first house arrest where he's visiting these places. He's just making incidental points of reference to these places and you know, in, you know, giving advice or counsel to those he's writing to in these places that he had visited. So there's this indication that the Apostle Paul had more ministry where he traveled to, to uh, various other places after this initial house arrest um, before he is uh, arrested for a final time. And then you start seeing um, the, the, a greater severity of the imprisonment that you see reflected in Second Timothy, um, particularly in chapter 4 there at the end. And, uh, and of course, he writes, he writes these letters, um, many of these letters he's writing, in, uh, while he's in the, under his first house arrest, and then subsequent to that, he writes a few others. So you have this this final uh, 
this final passageway of ministry before he ends up in the Mamertine prison and uh, is ultimately executed. Uh, he's uh, beheaded, um, as, as tradition tells us. He's beheaded as a Roman citizen. In other words, Peter also winds up in Rome. And um, uh, tradition and, and, uh, tells us that he was crucified. Some say he was crucified upside down, cause he, and he requested to be crucified upside down because he did not want to be crucified in the same manner as Christ. But he was crucified by the Romans as a Jew, whereas the Apostle Paul was beheaded uh, as a Roman citizen. Interestingly enough, when you get to um, when you start thinking about Acts and sort of the wrap up of these first thirty years, you, you notice obviously, and we talked about this very early on when we kind of thought about the outline of the way that the, the record unfolds for us in Acts. You've got the first half basically of Acts really focusing on the ministry of Peter and his leadership, and then the second half obviously turns to Paul with tremendous focus on him. And you have very, very limited, if any, reference to Peter at all anymore uh, in Acts. And you have to kind of wonder, well, what was he up to? What was he doing? Um, well, you have some indication of that, uh, not only from uh, Galatians, for example, where you have this description of the conflict that Paul and Peter had over the nature of the gospel that led to the, to the uh, Jerusalem council that we, re- that we read about in Acts chapter 15. But actually, 1 Peter is a good indication for us. 1 Peter is probably written around this time um, of Nero's burning of Rome and uh, subsequent persecution of Christians, um, where you have Peter writing to those that are scattered, those, those believers that are scattered. And you'll, you'll note, let's just turn to First Peter real quick and get a, a little picture of that. Really just trying to sort of I don't know, wrap some of this up as we move from here into sort of the early church fathers uh, portion of history. But you see there in First Peter, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. So you have this region in Asia Minor, which is generally a similar region, though some further out places uh, that the apostle Paul went to on his first and second missionary journeys. And so the indication here is that Peter may very well have also visited much of this region himself and, um, and, and knew these believers, and he's writing now to encourage them, particularly because um, of the persecution that they are facing. You know, he refers to this, um, Blessed be the God and Father, verse 3 of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance. He's just giving them all this doctrine of who they are and what God has done through Christ on their behalf. Uh, he, uh, this living hope and inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this is sort of the context of 1 Peter is believed to be this context of Nero and the persecution that is ensuing. It's it's just right around that time period where this encouragement is being written. He talks again, if you go to uh, chapter, I think it's chapter 4, 
um, verse 12, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings. And again, I've referenced this before, but one of the common ways that Nero um, sought to enjoy this ghastly um, persecution against believers was to encase them in wax or cover them in tar and light them on fire as illuminaries for his garden parties. Um, Really just a a, a level of of insane murderousness that is... um, that is a sight to behold for sure. Um, but that's, that's kind of the idea here is that there's this, the, this reference to fire that is um, sort of a reference to this kind of persecution. He references the fact that he's writing from Babylon. And uh, there's really only three options there when you think about him writing from Babylon. Um, it's either the ancient city Babylon, which would be a far-fetched notion because at that particular time there's few inhabitants. It wasn't the, the, the booming you know, center of commerce or, or power or anything at this particular time in the first century. So it's very unlikely that he would actually have been riding from Babylon. The other option is there's a Babylon, I think, in Egypt that, that could have been a reference to this, but that's a, also an unlikely location just because of the distance and the, the, the travel um, patterns that you see of the, the uh, first century apostles and all that. It just seems very, very unlikely. So most, uh, most scholars believe that he's using Babylon as sort of a code for Rome. Um, and really, under this persecution regime, he's trying to protect anyone who might be carrying this letter, anyone who might have this letter from, from discovering that he's actually writing this uh, from Rome. So this, this is just sort of a, a final sort of backdrop of, of Peter and the, and the ministry of the apostles and the first century in the early church where you had this severe persecution that is underway now with Nero and ultimately leads to Paul and Peter's uh, martyrdom there at the end. And that kind of wraps up for us the first 30 years. So now we're going to kind of jump into the next period of history. But I have some questions. I have, I have one question for you, and I'm curious to see what you might think before we close in prayer. If you, as you think about the first 30 years of the church's history, what are some takeaways I know that all of you haven't been in here for the whole time or every single study, but just thinking about the broad sweep of it, what are some takeaways that would apply to us as we think about this early church period? What comes to mind for you? Be focused on the truth of the gospel. Yeah. Yeah. Expect persecution. Suffering is a massive theme in the church's history. I mean, it's just massive. We talked about this last week, but these ideas of, of salvation and a walk of faith that are oriented toward comfort and ease, they just they do not reflect. They do not reflect the reality of the gospel. It doesn't reflect the nature of the gospel when when put into an environment of opposition. Just, it's not reflective of it. So there's much, much testimony and witness and encouragement of perseverance through severe trial that you see 
in the church's history. What else? I think just um, Paul's clarity of what he was uh, trying to communicate on his journeys. There was no ambiguity. There was no um, trying to convince them or, or whatever. It was just giving a clear presentation of the gospel. And uh, I think you had mentioned this before, um, but doing it in a way that provokes a response. Um, not just saying things for the sake of, well, now I want you to go simmer on that and let me know how you feel. You know, it's, it was provoking you either say, I want, I want to know more because this is interesting, or you absolutely deny it. Uh, so I guess that boldness and clarity that Paul just showed time and time again yeah. on this journey. Yeah. Yeah, it's, that, it's, it's, it's really, um, when you think about, and we've talked about this too, how the nature of the gospel itself is an offense. We don't have to be offensive in the way that we present it. In other words, we don't have to carry offensive tone. I mean, we, we live under the same accusations in our fallenness as anyone who's not a believer. I mean, why on earth would we carry the gospel message with some sense of you know, condemnation or judgment. It's the, it's the gospel itself that confronts, and it's the message of the gospel that provokes some kind of response. That's exactly right. And so being able to do that in the face of opposition, not returning evil for evil, that's an amazing um, challenge and testimony of faithfulness and maturity. I think about just the fact that the Lord will build His church. He said, I will build my church. And he has done it and will continue to do it. And you think about the, the extent of opposition, the nature of opposition. The, 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 every, every conceivable opportunity for this thing to, to flame out and die. And it doesn't. It's just a reminder, this is, this is Christ's church and he's building it. I mean, just get over yourselves. It's going to happen. Just be faithful as as his people, he's going to build it. And he's going to build it in and through persecution. He's going to build it through joy. He's going to build it through faithful witness. He's going to build it through dark times. He's going to build his church. And he is faithful to do that as we are faithful to walk with him in that. Well, there's a lot more we could talk about. I want to give us time to disperse. and So I'll pray for us in conclusion. But it's been a fun, a fun ride for me so far. I hope you're enjoying it. Let's pray.